We're in a matrix. We're in a matrix. We're in a matrix. Yeah, Brainiacs. Welcome aboard, my friends. And like I said, I could not wait for the night to be here. Ah, like, once again, my friends, joined by Mr. Paul Anthony Wallace. He has been seen on multiple podcasts. He's been seen on, I do, or heard, heard on George Norrie's Coast to Coast AM. I do, yes, yes. Uh, no doubt. From He is the author and bestseller of Escaping from Eden and The Scars of Eden, which I had the opportunity to read. That, my friends, is one hell of a read. It will have you digging, connecting dots. You'll be like... Oh, yeah. You'll be wanting to get the Echoes of Eden, I assure you. Ancient stories from around the world describes contact from entities, which today would be called extraterrestrials or ETs. What secrets surrounding humans and potential life hidden from the world's forbidden books, ancestral narratives, and why we were, why that all was buried? Paul is going to help me dive deep into that right now. Everybody, welcome to the show of the Matrix Minds for the first time, Mr. Paul Anthony Wallace. Welcome aboard, my friend. Glad to have you here. G'day, Matt. Thanks so much for having me on your show. <laughs> You're welcome, buddy. I, I we're, we're happy to have you here. Indeed, we're happy to hear, have you here. Oh, the feeling is mutual. <laughs> when, whenever you wrote the first book, I call it a series, okay? That, that's because... I got a really good feeling that I'm going to get a continuation from Scars of Eden and the Echoes of Eden. Am I right? Yes, you're absolutely right. The Echoes of Eden and the Scars of Eden and Escaping from Eden, I've written them all to be gateway books. They're all intended that you could give them to absolutely anybody. Uh, you can give them to a person who's got zero interest in the idea of ancient ET contact or gives it zero credibility and the book should be able to take them from zero to saying oh actually <laughs> there's something serious here that I could give my attention to all three books can be a gateway uh, they start at different points in the journey but in different respects they all drill deeper so the scars of Eden drills into the psychological after effects on us as a species of paleo contact in echoes of eden i drill down into the world's indigenous narratives and into initiation traditions and say look the information you're looking for is right there and it confirms what we hear from contemporary experiences and it repeats all around the world and it ties information about our origins with our capacity as human beings today. What is our potential? What are our true cognitive powers? And how do we live the best human life that we can in the light of all this incredible information? In, <clears throat> no, sounds sounds really good. In The Scars of Eden, okay, you touched about, uh, again, paleo contact. What, give everybody the description of what it is for those who do not understand the word. Yeah. Paleo contact is the theory that our ancestors in the deep past had contact with extraterrestrial visitors. So contact is contact and paleo is in the beginning. My research in the Bible and in ancestral narratives around the world suggests that many of the stories that we're familiar with, including in the Bible, 
that we've interpreted as religious stories or as God stories are in reality stories of paleo contact. Your average, your average, let's just say, I'm just saying, your, your, your average religious person would say, like you've said in, in Scars of Eden, Paul, I, I think, I think you may have lost it. But the, <laughs> but the thing is, those people have not, it's not, Paul, it's not even having an open mind. Those people clearly have not researched what all you and I have dug into. And you went a lot farther than I have, and you put it in a book. Well, it's not only that they've not researched, it's a taboo topic in mainstream Christianity. And it really surprised me when I started researching into this to discover that in the beginning, Christianity included conversations about paleo contact and that many significant early church fathers believed exactly the things I'm putting out, namely that mm -hmm. some of the Bible stories of beginnings are not stories about God, they've been mistranslated, they're stories about a totally different kind of entity, one which today we would call an extraterrestrial. But most Christians and Christian churches just don't know that. They are not taught church history from the pulpit or the history of Christian thought from the pulpit. And if all they have is their present day translation of the Bible, there would be no clue in that translation that there are ET stories in the Bible, except for all these little knots and problems and anomalies that don't quite make sense. You know, every time a child asks you a question that you can't answer, from a Bible story, like why does God say let us make, or how could a God of love genocide an entire human race and change his mind about having created them, or have an argument with himself about how intelligent they should be, or fail to anticipate something a child could anticipate, that Adam and Eve are gonna eat that apple. Those questions are all clues that the meta-narrative we're telling is slightly off, that there really is something else going on in that text. Or if you come to the story of Abraham uh, nearly killing his son because he, he believes God has told him to do it. And then at the last moment, God says, only joking. Any parent with a child struggles to explain this because there's something else going on in the text. And it was actually anomalies like that that called me back to the texts, having preached on them for more than four decades having trained pastors in how to interpret the text for 15 years, I'd still not got my head around those things. And I kept <laughs> right. promising myself, when I have the time, I'm going to go back and work out what's really going on in those texts. And what's really going on is another layer of story that if you address some translation issues, suddenly becomes blindingly obvious. And it tells a totally different story of human origins. You mentioned in Scars of Eden a little bit, the Book of Enoch, <coughs> excuse me, and, and some other, um, you know, some other sacred stuff, sacred teachings, per se. What do you, th what do you think about the, the, de the demonology part of, do you follow where I'm going? The demonology part of the Book of Enoch. <laughs> 
demons versus people. Yes, I think I get a, a, a lot of response from people who say, don't be talking about aliens, call them for what they are, they're demons. Mm -hmm. And the reason why a lot of people jump straight there is that in mainstream Christianity, uh, there are just so many categories of things in the universe. You've got God, the devil, angels, demons, animal, vegetable, mineral, and that's it. So whatever you experience, it has to go in one of those boxes. And so if you come across an anomaly that doesn't seem to be a manifestation of God or an avatar of God, uh, and you can't explain it, you've only got the demon box left. <laughs> uh, and yeah. that's the box that people go to. And I mm. totally um, understand that. I now realize, and I only worked this out after I'd written Escaping from Eden, that I experienced a close encounter of the fourth kind when I was 20 years old, but I didn't know what it was. And at the time, as a young Christian, I looked at the boxes and I thought, well, that must have been a demon that I encountered, except there were many things about the encounter that over the years of doing uh, study in the Bible made me realize, no, that is not what a demon is in the Bible. That was something else. And so it was 30 years later that I worked out that was a different kind of entity, non-human, non-terrestrial, what we would call an alien or an ET. But at first I couldn't go there because that was a taboo term in the Christianity that I was operating in. But if you go back, as I say, to the roots of Christianity, to the root meanings of the texts, and if you go back to the conversation of Christianity in the first couple of centuries, people talked about interdimensional beings, transdimensional contact, extraterrestrial mm -hmm. beings. It was all part of the conversation. And Christianity was a kaleidoscope of experiences and theologies in the beginning, and it then got narrowed down, and some of these other topics became things we don't talk about but they're still in the bible what's in the book of enoch is in the bible in genesis 6 where it talks about this hybridization <coughs> experience that went on or you go to hebrews in the new testament and you've got contact with ancestral spirits that's still been left in the canon of the bible you go to right. 1 john 4 and they're still channeling of interdimensional beings still in the bible but those things sort of got ignored and then in the text where you couldn't ignore it well those were the texts that were buried in the desert and gotten rid of and anathematized so you know we've had nearly 2,000 years of entrainment whereby people just know if they're part of mainstream religion you don't talk about a close encounter if you've had one or you don't talk about an ET if you think you've identified it in the Bible or in an ancient text it's just not acceptable. Right. I Just as an illustration, uh, and then I'll stop talking for a moment, okay. but I have a pastor friend in the UK who's been involved in paranormal ministry for some years. Now, in most churches, paranormal ministry means dealing with demons. Mm -hmm. It means uh, deliverance ministry. It means exorcisms. But this particular lady had been in two parishes where... A number of parishioners had come to her reporting close encounters. 
And so she went to the leader of the paranormal ministry team, who, who I think was the bishop on one occasion. And she said, we don't have any pastoral protocols for responding to this kind of case. We don't have any theology for responding to it. We really need to develop that because I, as a pastor, have to know what to do when people report these things. Yeah, absolutely. And her bishop said, you're absolutely right. Please don't mention it again. And that's more or less where what? most believers are left. That this is just something we don't talk about. Don't mention it again? Yes. But it's exactly. happening around the globe. Happening all around the world. And I think it may have been happening in her parishes because she was close to major military installations. And those are often flashpoints for close encounter phenomena. Right. So I told her, look, the best place you can go is go to military and air force chaplains because they will have had people go to them reporting those experiences. <laughs> and you might like to go to the head of paranormal, paranormal ministry for the Roman Catholic Church. Go to the work of Monsignor Corrado Balducci because over a decade ago, the Roman Catholic Church acknowledged uh, extraterrestrials and close encounters as something other than an experience of demons. And when somebody of that authority says that in the Roman Catholic Church, it means you're really listening to the official opinion. You're listening to the papal opinion. Paul, here's the thing. I, I remember this. I remember this like it was yesterday. We, we, well, we, we, I'm speaking for all of us in this, in this community. We have been kind of like waiting for like tidbits, drops, just uh, the initiative of like just a just give me some diluted disclosure well 15 two days after my birthday december 17th 2017 guess what the pentagon released to everybody ah well yes mm -hmm. that it was leaked wasn't it it, uh, leaked? it wasn't well, yeah, Paul, they had no choice, bro, because they had, we've got an Air Force pilot taking literally. We got an Air yeah. Force video taking pilot, uh, you know, taking video, and he's just going, "Do you guys see see this?" And yeah. he's like, "What did they do? They had no choice, Paul. It wasn't a leak. That was a that was an oh oh moment. They had no choice, bud. Yeah, they had to do well, something." They did. Uh, mind you, that film had been around since 2004. It was actually 2019, I believe, when the Pentagon finally came forward and authenticated it. But right. it had, we'd, we'd been watching it for two years. Yes. Because yes. Cr Chris Mellon, the former Assistant Secretary of Defense for Presidents Clinton and George W. Bush, he leaked it, and he was only able to leak it because it was semi-official. So it was right. out in the public domain for two years, so we're gonna see how people respond to it. Then the Pentagon comes forward and says, yes, that is authentic. And at that <laughs> point, we start hearing from more of the naval personnel who were involved in that encounter back in 2004. Okay. And it's been amazing what has been said in public by senior figures since 2017, because not only have you had Chris Mellon, we've heard from Luis Elizondo, who for 10 years headed up the Pentagon's secret task force for investigating UFO crash retrievals. We've heard from Eric Davis, uh, a senior physicist who has briefed those bodies, and Jacques Vallée, who with him has researched materials ret retrieved 
from UFO crashes. Their work has been authenticated by um, Alain Juillet, the former chief of uh, French security. Mm-hmm. And then we heard from Haim Ashed, the former chief of Israel's space security program, the brigadier general who held that position for 27 years, who came forward and said that at a covert government level, we've been in contact with other species who are part of an intergalactic federation who've chosen not to self-disclose for the time being until human beings have a better understanding of space. Now, those figures are authoritative figures. It is only one degree removed from the person in authority in the position coming forward and saying, I've got something to tell you. And I've never seen that level of disclosure in my lifetime before. Uh, It's been a massive change. 70 years where the Mm -hmm. official policy was debunking in public and analysis in private. And then in 2017, everything started to change. So, of course, uh, with all that momentum building, people were expecting something a bit more than we got with the Senate briefings Mm -hmm. last year in June. We thought, oh, finally, finally, (laughs) they're going to come clean. Finally... Uh, U.S. defense is going to brief the Senate Intelligence Committee with everything they know uh, about UFOs and ET contact, and we got nine pieces of paper with none of the 70 years' data presented to 80 and the other bodies in it. Nothing from the Nuclear Regulatory Authority that would have all the data about nuclear arsenals being switched on and off by other entities we don't know what they are all the juicy stuff absent right and yet even in that nine pages and two pages of that was an appendix so even within the, the seven redacted, pages a redacted appendix right that's right and so they said well we're just going to look at the official reports filed by u.s defense so whoa, now we're only looking at this and mm. only since 2004 now we're only looking at this But even within that remit, the report says that U.S. defense operations are interfered with by UFOs, to use the familiar term, Mm -hmm. on average once every six weeks, and that that frequency has been maintained for 17 years at the time of the report, and that there is zero evidence that these UAPs or UFOs are the covert technology of uh, black operations at home or covert operations of foreign powers. Zero evidence. Mm -hmm. So even there, they're telling you the UFO phenomenon is real. It happens frequently, just within defense. We're totally aware of this and we have encounters once every six weeks. So that's quite... That's quite a lot of encounters just on that tiny, narrow remit. When do you think... Now, I I haven't... I was going to ask you this the other day on on your other uh, interview. When do you think that... And I'm I'm, I'm I'm going to you because, again, to me... I'm not... The the broadcast... this, This broadcast may be globally global... But the thing is, is I'm not an author, okay? You're an author. You have the credentials of being an author and getting it out there and putting it in a book and and, and an interview. When do you think people like yourself, and I'm hoping you, will catch the attention, okay, of, of academiology, 
those with credentials, credentialists, so if you want to call them that, I just made up a mat word, those with credentials to step forward alongside of you and not be afraid to disclose what's truly out there and what they've truly encountered. I'm talking about people with degrees, Paul, because that's what we're waiting for. We're, waiting, yes. we're literally waiting on that. That's a really good question because right now, even with these official statements, our culture is still in the place where it's writers who will push the conversation forward and people in the world of uh, academia will come and say, you're right and I've got some data that supports what you're saying, but don't quote me. You know, I support you, but not in public. And we're, we are still in that place. I think that tenure and peer review are very conservatizing things. So it's only the very most courageous of academics, perhaps towards the end of their career, who might step forward and say, mm, I think Paul Wallace is right. Uh, I think this is going on. I think paleo contact is the right interpretation of things. The best place where you can hear scientists willing to um, speak on this is probably in the field of DNA research because right from the get-go, when Watson and Crick discovered the double helix structure of DNA, people in that field have been willing to talk about uh, life off-planet and the idea that life on Earth originated off-planet. And so from the 60s on, scientists in that field have spoken about panspermia, the idea that the genetic coding for conscious, intelligent, biological life mm -hmm. has been seeded throughout the cosmos, that exactly. life is the norm rather than the exception, that whenever it lands in an hospitable environment, which means a planet with water, <coughs> it will generate forms of life similar to us. Right. So as soon as you're talking about panspermia, you're in a universe where our neighbors and our cousins can show up. So you've got academics there willing to speak about it. You do also have some senior Catholic academics like Guy Consolmagno, who's the chief senior astronomer for the uh, Roman Catholic Observatory and the uh, director of the observatory, um, I'm blanking on his name, Jose Gabriel Funes, who again are willing to go to the mic and say, it's probable we're in a populated universe. We should be ready to greet our neighbors when they show up and embrace them as a brother or sister alien. So there are little pockets of academics willing to go there, but the culture at large is still one where, mm, no, it's gonna be the writers who push the conversation <laughs> forward. Right. And then hopefully the public jump on board with that. But, you know, I think it's, at one level, it's a fool's errand for us to sit twiddling our thumbs, waiting for people in authority to tell us what's what. You know, waiting for the president to come to the mic and say, my fellow Americans, I've got something I want to tell you. I actually think we're going to get much further if we listen to one another. Because I think there wouldn't be a family or a friendship circle anywhere that if you sat them down and asked the question, have you ever experienced anything you couldn't explain? Mm -hmm. Every circle would have an answer. Every circle would have a story. If we're willing to listen without ridicule, listen without prejudice, hear the stories, put them together, and what you will find they add up to is that on this planet, we've got company and we've had company 
for a long, long time. That <clears throat> that very same thing happened to you. Very same thing happened to you in Scars of Eden. Yes, you it have, did. You have the wife's family over for dinner, right? And you're like, uh, I don't. What was the pre-conversation with wife before that dinner? Did you, honey? Can you, what do you think? Me bring this up to the family here? Do you, do you, what, because that very same thing yeah. happened to you, right? Yeah, it did. It's happened a couple of times with my own parents and then with my parents-in-law. Uh, my wife Ruth and I have been making mm -hmm. this journey together over the last few years. If we've reframed a lot of our our thinking. And we've, we've come to the same conclusions. So Ruth's been on board as I've done my research and written the books. And then it suddenly dawned on me. I was going to have to tell my Love mom her that. For that. Great. <laughs> and my in-laws about the new book. Because all my previous books were about Christian spirituality, biography, history. They were, you know, nice, sweet books. So I thought, okay, next time, <laughs> Kofi and Patience are here, I'm going to have to mention this before they, you know, read, read it in the paper or whatever. <laughs> Paul's just so, like, let's, it's time, let's just shake things up. <laughs> <laughs> so they came and stayed for the weekend. Now, my in-laws are Christian believers. They're from Ghana. They are Pentecostal and Baptist stock. So I had no idea how they were going to respond to me saying, um, <clears throat> excuse me, I've just written a book saying the Bible, half of it isn't really about God, it's about ETs. And uh, that story about God creating us, there's some detail in there I'm wanting to add about ETs adapting us in the deep past. I had no idea how they would take it. So I waited until we'd had a nice meal uh, and some nice wine and everyone was relaxed. And then I went through all that and they listened, poker faces, I couldn't tell what they were thinking. And when I finally finished, my father-in-law, Kofi, <laughs> sat back and said, Paul, a penny has dropped. Um, what he meant by that was all those stories where God seems to be behaving very strangely in the Hebrew scriptures and the Old Testament suddenly made sense because those were not stories about God behaving strangely. They were the interactions of ETs at war with each other or conflicting with each other. So that suddenly made sense, and all the monstrous, immoral things that God does in those stories suddenly made sense. It wasn't God doing them, it was E.T. colonizers doing them. So that just clicked. He said, yes, no, that makes sense. Oh, okay, that was easy. <laughs> and then my, my mother-in-law, Patience, leant forward, and she said, Paul, in Ghana, we already know this. <laughs> we already know when we go to school we're taught modern science and Christian orthodoxy but the local knowledge is that we're not alone on planet earth mm -hmm. that there is a non-human presence interacting with us here uh, and sometimes it's a story of abduction and hybridization and those stories are hundreds maybe thousands of years old and in fact we're very close with another family who experienced an abduction and it was a hybridization story, part of the Mami Water tradition coming out of Ghana. So my right. jaw hit the floor when I heard this. I had mm -hmm. no idea that there was this other story in Ghana. My own heritage is Ghanaian as well. I had no idea that we were connected with a, a family with an ET abductee or a hybridization story. And it was that that sent me on a world tour because right. I discovered that's not just in Ghana. You can go to Kenya. 
all down the western seaboard of Africa, go to Haiti, Cuba, Caribbean, go to the Philippines. The whole of Europe is named after an E.T. abductee, Europa. And you can go to the Celtic countries, Norse countries, go to Wales. That's the land of my father's on my mother's side. You've got the story of Tilworth Tig. And it's the same story as the Mammy Water story, only it's told in Welsh about what happens to people in Wales. And so I realized that this narrative of contact and abduction and hybridization is global. It's ages old. Every culture carries the memory of it, though somehow that never makes its way into the textbooks and the official narratives. And it was that that really got me going uh, on the journey that created the Scars of Eden. Wow. See, the Paleolithic time frame, right? Um, me Me and Wayne talked a little bit about this on Wednesday. And it's like a lot of, <clears throat> again, you mentioned that the disclosure probably won't really happen by our governments and mainstream. I, I will totally agree with you there. They're not going to, they're going to maybe say, yeah, they're right. And kind of like leaks, leak different things. But you and I can definitely agree with they're not going to do it. It's going to, it will happen between you, myself, other people and I, I guess what they're gonna to have to face it well I, mean, I think what they are doing is soft disclosure which is sort of an insurance against it suddenly becoming blindingly obvious so that they can say <laughs> well do you remember we acknowledged the UFO phenomenon back in 2019 uh, or they might have to say do you remember those articles that were published by defense in the 1940s we, right. we did mention this and the Roman Catholic Church did the same with its colloquium in 2009, having all these authorities come forward and say there's no incompatibility between aliens and Christianity, so that if all of a sudden they do land on the White House lawn, the Roman Catholic Church can say, don't, don't you remember, we mentioned this back in 2009. So they do soft disclosure, and I think I've come to believe that the policy of silence uh, is not one that originates with our governments. Uh, it doesn't even originate with our covert layers of government. I actually think what Hamer Shedd said is correct, that it's the Intergalactic Federation who've got some agreement of non-disclosure and that our covert governments then have to fall in line with that. However, I think that agreement is not as watertight as it's been in the past. That's why we've seen an acceleration of encounters, mass sightings, why we're getting much more soft disclosure than we've had before, because there's the feeling, mm, any moment, it could become blindingly obvious. And at that point, we have to have somewhere to go. So before you can come forward and say, yes, we've been in contact, you have to have the mid-step of acknowledging the UFO phenomenon. And so mm. we're now in the mid-step. Well, indeed, I'm going to tell you right now, it, it where where I'm at and you're at with what's going to happen, again, I, I think the I think your book is pretty much leading, your books is pretty much leading up to allowing people to, not again, not, not even the ones that have an open mind, just it, it, if it gives them enough information to connect dots that they may have 
always had questions to. That's what I liked about Scars of Eden, okay? Mm-hmm. And, and again, when it comes to disclosure, the search is, the search is internal. And your book clearly gives you the dots to connect with, the dots that you've already got, if you've already had the questions in your own self, if that makes any sense. Yeah, that's right. I think what uh, ancestral narratives say, and what I'm saying in The Scars of Eden, Mm -hmm. is that it is impossible to understand why the world operates in the way it does until you realize that the roots of our history are in paleo contact. Until right. you realize that governance uh, as a human phenomenon originated from a time when we were governed by non-human entities, you will never understand why things happen in the way they do. And so that's another way of saying people have questions all the time about why did that happen? Why does it work this way? Why is there always an argument over uh, how big the world's population should be? Why is that an issue when there are enough resources for all of us? Why is there a perpetual to and fro over how much education human beings should be allowed? Whether they should have access to medication on a free basis or on a patented privatized basis. All these conflicts are perennial. And you can't understand why we never get to a resolution until you read the ancestral narratives about how we were governed in the deep past. All these culture wars we're experiencing right now, for instance, the, the conflict over two different models of farming, the conflict between natural, rotational, uh, organic farming and industrial scale petrochemical GM farming, There's a big clash happening right now in the USA and other countries around the world. You can't understand that until you go into the deep past and realize that there were two diametrically opposed ET interventions in our origins as a species that set those dynamics on a collision course. And it's some of that territory that the Scars of Eden explores. Before before we take a three minute break, two minute break, Paul, let me go. Let me ask. I've got to ask you because you made uh, you made a really good connection in, in Scars of Eden with me with with my own knowing um, was the you connected the Elohim, the Elohim, and the Anunnaki them stories. Um, give your description verbally now, please, if you can, if you will. Your your understanding of the creator beings in the bible the elohim whatever whatever however you wish to put it yeah in the bible we've got a number of stories of origins that have been placed side by side uh, in the book of genesis uh, 1 to 11 in particular and then genesis 18 there's another uh, origin story there and the word that's translated as god in most of those texts is elohim and you'll find the word elohim and the word yahweh in those texts. The word Yahweh is the holy name of God, not revealed until after the time of Moses. So that tells you straight away that you've got older stories retold by someone after the time of Moses. So the original stories were Elohim stories, and the word Yahweh has been imported. Translate that word Elohim, and you find that the root meaning is the powerful ones in the plural. 
that suddenly explains why you've got plural verbs, plural behaviors, let us make, why they get into arguments with one another, why they have wars with one another, and thousands of people get slaughtered in those wars. Suddenly, you're beginning to see this is a story of plural entities called Elohim, the powerful ones. So in escaping from Eden, I ask the question, what happens if you retell those stories and translate Elohim as the powerful ones instead? The stories make much more sense uh, in a lot of respects, but the other thing that happens is they suddenly flip around and you realize you're reading a parallel telling of the story of the Anunnaki in the Sumerian, Babylonian, Assyrian, and Arcadian stories. Suddenly you realize the Mesopotamian stories are the source, and the biblical version are the adaptation. And the source stories are not about God, they are about extraterrestrial entities who colonized our planet in the deep past and genetically modified our ancestors. Once you've seen that dependence, you can't go back to the Bible and read the stories the old way because you realize they don't make sense the old way. They make sense <coughs> as a summary form of the Anunnaki stories. Man, do you guys understand what I said about he is going to shake up academiology? With what he just said, Paul, I'm telling you, when we come back, okay, you seriously, it's it's your it's the two minute break here. So when we come back, you and I are going to talk about like be, before before the Bible. I'm talking Mars colonization. We're I'm talking like human seeding, genetic modification, you name it. Okay, we're gonna go way back. Can we do that? We can. (laughs) Because I have no doubt in my mind that you are going to shake things up. I told you, Brainiacs, this is the man that's going to shake up academiology and like, oh yeah, the force to be reckoned with, Mr. Mr. Paul Anthony Wallace. It is indeed break time. Paul, do your thing, my friend, and we'll catch you guys on the other side of things. All right. Matrix Minds, everyone. Sit back, 
next hour and a half, we are going to question everything. That's right, brain. You guys, the breakers of this matrix. Those that question everything. Even reality. Let's do this. Let's do this, y'all. From conspiratorial politics to ufology to the land of unknown Egypt. That land in which is long forgotten. Buried in history. Buried in history and shrouded by that history in which they want us to know. We know. You and I know. There's more to this story. Welcome to the Matrix. Welcome to the Matrix. The Matrix Mind. You thought that you were alone, didn't you? Until you arrived in. You arrived safely here within this now. You're not alone, Brainiac. Sit back and enjoy the conversation. You're never alone. And once again, welcome to the Matrix Mind. It's go time. Show time. My friends all over the planet, look at this. Look at this. Awesome, awesome evening with Mr. Paul Anthony Wallace discussing his up-and-coming book, Echoes of Eden. Indeed, I know that I'm not really uh, a person to give this man an endorsement, but let me tell you what. He, he, needs, he needs a really, really good one because what he, what he brings to the platform is is questioning literally everything from the foundation of the religion to the foundation of what we're taught as history. And like I told you guys, he, he's literally connecting the dots and bringing things to the table to where, I, I, I hate to say it, but even, if you, even a junior high school kid can connect the dots. You don't really have to study this, be researching it for years and years. Again, Paul has made it really, really simple, broken it down, and it, it cannot get any more easier than that. And now, Mr. Paul and I are going to shift gears into something pre-pre-Earth. I asked him before the break, I asked him before the break, he said, yeah, we're good with that. So, Mr. Paul Anthony Wallace and myself, we're Paul. Let's talk about where we were before we were Homo sapien here on this planet. Because there are stories, Paul. There are stories that say that we, at one form, one form or another, were um, on Mars. We were on Tiamat. We were somewhere other than planet Gaia. 
Give me your give me your two cents on that, my friend. Sure. Well, growing up when I did, I was a Star Trek kid, and uh, whenever I saw uh, aliens on Star Trek, they all looked like they had just walked out of the makeup department of a film studio uh, because they had two arms, two legs. A torso, a neck, and a head, two eyes, etc., etc. They were actors, mm-hmm. and I thought, well, I'll go along with this because obviously you don't have an infinite budget for TV series. That's just what an alien has to look like. And now I realise that there might actually be quite a good scientific explanation uh, for neighbours looking rather like us. And it goes back to that explanation of panspermia. Now, panspermia has been around as a theory since the 1960s uh, in scientific form. But Plato taught panspermia two and a half thousand years ago. And he had different language for it, but that's what he was talking about. So he had this amazing cosmic vision uh, in which he said in the beginning was consciousness. And that consciousness preceded the material universe and the material universe came into existence so that consciousness could express itself and experience itself. So at a very philosophical level, he's beginning to talk about panspermia. Panspermia is the nuts and bolts, mechanical engineer's version of what Plato was saying, that the genetic coding for biological conscious intelligent life has been spread throughout the cosmos. And we could fully expect beings who look like us to turn up from other planets. They might look a little different, they might be smaller, thinner, larger, but two arms, two legs, a head, a torso, we could fully expect to find that. Now even on planet Earth, we've got examples of remarkably similar creatures apparently having evolved completely separately on different continents because they are filling the same niche. So up until the 1930s, we had the Tasmanian tiger, which was a a dog. It was a marsupial dog that wasn't related in any way, shape or form to the European dog. And yet they looked the same and they did the same thing because they were fulfilling the same niche. Well, the same may very well happen on an interplanetary level. And that means that we can expect to have neighbors who look rather like us. Now, if you listen to the ancestral narratives of Native American peoples, First Nation Canadians, Aboriginal Australians, they will talk about our ancestors being visited in the deep past by beings who came from a planet orbiting a star in the Pleiades. They actually identified that region of space. And the people who came had two arms, two legs, a torso, and a head. (laughs) And those ancient narratives, if you're willing to take them seriously, and I don't know why you wouldn't be, suggest that this kind of being is, again, not the exception in the cosmos, that we are part of a much bigger android, human-like species that populates the cosmos. And so we have what the Roman Catholic Church refers to as family in the cosmos. So our story doesn't begin here. Our story could well begin on the Pleiades or in some other region of space 
What the ancestors say is that ETs came here and Plato taught the same thing, by the way. Two and a half thousand years ago, this is his books, Fido, Timaeus and Critias. He said that we were adapted for higher consciousness and higher intelligence. And if you read the Sumerian stories or the Mayan stories out of the Popol Vuh from Guatemala, you will read the same story of beings coming and adapting our ancestors. And it suggests that they found something that already had two arms, two legs, a torso and a head, some kind of a primate, and they upgraded them by combining their own uh, DNA with the DNA of those creatures. So we are earthlings, but we're also something else. We've got a bit of ET in us that got us to this point, got us to the point where we're no longer entirely adapted to the planet. Right. I mean, Bear Grylls can live in the wild naked for a month, maybe. But uh, you and I, after three days and three nights, would be very ill, hospitalized, or deceased if we had a go at that. <laughs> right. We can only live on this planet with technology, if we can light a fire, if we can build a structure, if we can fashion a weapon. Where did that intelligence come from? Where did that consciousness come from? That's really the missing uh, link in the story. And our ancestors say that that upgrade was provided by visitors from elsewhere so that we now look a bit like them. We're part of their family as much as we are part of the family of Earth. So that's the wider context. So if all of a sudden we found the, the evidence of people who look very much like us, who thousands of years ago lived on the planet Mars, we should not be too surprised to find it. Now, because it's not the mainstream story, because you don't get taught this at school, I actually think a lot of people would have their minds blown if we suddenly found uh, buildings that look like human beings on the surface of Mars. Right. I think it's, it's almost more uh, disturbing to find human remains on Mars than it would be to find aliens. Paul, here, here's the thing. <clears throat> you know, and I, I've, I've been talking to some other other really heavy hitters in, in uh, with credentials throughout the week that are archaeologists and um, uh, re researchers of, of, of history. They have also said that if we're searching for things like I don't know, let's say building remnants or things like that, right? If it is not inner earth, then it's going to already be dust. Yes, that's right. And the same applies to previous civilizations on planet earth, of course. Mm -hmm. How would we know about previous civilizations on earth? Uh, because if it's prior to everything we know, it would be ground to a dust yeah, right. on the, in the sedimentary layers. Um, but we do have other sources of information, of course, uh, and that's where ancestral narratives come in. That's where interdimensional contact comes in. And yes, there are stories of, um, well, not just stories, there's evidence of people living underground on planet Earth. The ant uh, people, from time past, thousands of years ago, huge uh, mm -hmm. structures built underground, presumably to help the human population survive some kind of a cataclysm. If that's the story here, 
then we would fully expect it to be the story on the planet Mars, which clearly did suffer some kind of a cataclysm in which the atmosphere was fried. So right. I, I think that's the wider context. You were saying, and I'm, I'm like, the ant people, the ant people, you know, because all throughout, you know, all throughout, not, I'm not saying the Bible, per se, or, or the Quran, I'm saying through verbalization and different stories, you've heard of the inner earth people. I mean, I, I, I've interviewed a, a quite a number of people that literally have told me that their entities, their extraterrestrial contact, Paul, has came from inner earth. Okay? Yes. So, and it does, it it is in our folklore, Mm -hmm. uh, it is in our grassroots stories, and uh, if you go to Muslim countries, you will hear uh, mythology about, about the jinn and who they were and where they came from and entities who were on planet earth long before humanity was here. And so these memories are there, but they're just not the ones you tend to get taught at school. You're talking about, you said, you mentioned the jinn, which shifts things over to like a metaphysical, spiritual, uh, non-physical side of things. The jinn, I know as the creation of Allah, the, the ones who were created by smokeless fire, Correct. Yes, that's right. And there are there's, there are other names, there's other language for them in other traditions and faith communities. So we've got a brief mention by the Apostle Paul of elemental spirits, for instance. Elementals. To, that's right, elementals. Mm-hmm. Or you go to the um, Gnostic texts and there's the language of archons. And so this idea of either trans-dimensional or energy-based entities that um, live alongside biological life and interact with it in ways that are sometimes helpful and a lot of the time not very helpful. Confusing. That's right. So the fact that we've got this language for it in these different faith communities is very, very interesting. The jinn is probably the most developed version of that story. But it's something I think when people discover it, they they think it rings true that there is something that is bigger than human history where you can see the same forces and dynamics playing out from age to age, century to century, millennium to millennium. And you begin to think, no, we're just a piece of the puzzle in a much bigger picture here. Oh, we are. You can... You, you know, we, we definitely are. You, beyond beyond the inbox, beyond the inbox control mechanism, okay, of religion, Paul, you, can, you and I can both say, I, I hope you will agree with me, that there is a, something, something inside. It doesn't, you know, I don't, I don't, like I tell my wife, my, my, my wife's family, I do not have to go to church to feel the love of something in me. Okay. There's something out there that whenever I, I reach out to it and I cry and I pour my heart out to it, you get a feeling, right? An overwhelming feeling of a connection that is not of this planet. 
Yeah. And and you can't, dude. I cannot even. You can't even. I could. It has no face. It has no name. It has just a feeling, Paul. And. Mm-hmm. I absolutely agree with that. I think that um, religion, in a way, has has hijacked the language of spirit or the language of God in such a way that a lot of people just don't want to go near that vocabulary because they don't want to buy in to everything that's associated with organized religion, which has a very dark side to it. What I would say is that I love the Apostle Paul's definition of God when he was put on the spot one day to define what he meant by God when he was speaking to an audience that wasn't religious. They weren't Jewish, they weren't Christian, and he had to clarify his terms. So he said, by God, I mean the source of the cosmos and everything in it, that in which we all live and move and have our being, as one of your poets has said. So this is very interesting because in that definition, whether you're spiritual, non-spiritual, religious, non-religious, he says we all live and move and have our being in the source. Your intelligence is an aspect of the source intelligence. Your consciousness is an expression of source consciousness. Um, There's no separation between you and the source. And I love that vision because very often religion trades on separation anxiety. It does. It says you are separated from God and you're going to be in trouble after you die. Here's how you claw your way back into his presence and in his good books and we'll tell you how. And it then Mm -hmm. empowers the teachers and the leaders. That's how religion trades on separation anxiety. In that definition from Paul, there's no separation anxiety. Your thoughts are an aspect of divine thought. And that rings true to what you were just saying, Matt, about your experience and to mine, that I find, um, I find help and answers and assistance very forthcoming when open-mindedly I ask for it and I look for it. And that assistance can come in all manner of ways. It can come from my seven-year-old son suddenly saying something out of the blue that is just the perfect answer to the thing. Right. That I was wondering about, or a dream, or another person, or some circumstance. And if you go to a couple of those texts I mentioned before from the New Testament, Hebrews, for instance, talks about every one of us having an invisible team around us, there for our support. Hebrews talks about ancestral spirits. 1 John 4 talks about spirits there to support us, help us on our journey. And I love 1 John 4 because he never explains what he means. <laughs> what is a spirit? Right. What, who? He, he never says. Are they ancestral spirits? Are they interdimensional entities? Are they right. energy-based beings? What are they are beings who? like you and me that, it, that just happen to communicate telepathically? In some languages, a spirit is actually a physical entity. Right. So what is it? He never says what he means. He just says, look, you're going to be getting information. Some of it's going to be good. Filter it. Weigh it up. Keep your uh, sovereignty keep your autonomy, decide what you think is right, but you're going to be getting some good information. So those writers in the deep past were saying, we all have team. Plato uh, did the Kaikion ceremony to induce an altered state of consciousness so that he could have a conversation with interdimensional beings so he could get some of the information that went into, into his books. 
Right. So these are all examples of people getting help from the cosmos. And very often they're a little bit agnostic about where the help's coming from, but it certainly does. And in Echoes of Eden, I've got some amazing stories of experiences of healing where Sangomas and Nangas, who are the traditional healers in Southern Africa, or uh, Navajo guardians uh, from North America, they talk about their healing modalities and they're talking about contact. They're talking about contact with invisible team here to support us. And I love telling those stories because I think sometimes when you use the word alien, um, suddenly Mars attacks, uh, invasion of the body snatches, right. flashes, Independence Day, it all flashes into your mind. And our ancestors had a much more diverse spectrum they, of stories to tell. Yes, they did. And the thing, the thing is, they they also uh, them, them them stories. You got to remember, Paul. They're they're we know them stories as mythology. What would and I and I tell you, I already know you're going to agree with me. What was mythology was actually just real. It was realism. It's just it got yes. lost. I think um, mythology. I, I, I don't have any problem with that word as long as you don't think I've just said fiction. Yeah, right. And you don't have to read mythology in a fundamentalist way because it's very easy to fall into that where you read it as if it's a diary entry or a scientific account, you know, phrase by phrase, this is what happened. I've right. come to believe that a lot of these ancient stories are ways of curating visual memory. And so there will be metaphor, language that's been reached for to describe what our ancestors saw. So when um, the ancient Filipino narrative says that a hawk hovered over the floodwaters of the planet and used its wings to create vortices that would clear water away from the land and then dry the land, I don't think it was a hawk. Or when you go to stories from out of the Iroquois Confederacy that speak about uh, a turtle um, being used to form land and the land grew on top of the turtle. I don't think it was the turtle. I think we're looking at technology. I've seen modern land reclamation and if I were describing it with a pre-technological eye, then I would reach for that kind of metaphor. If I were describing a craft hovering over the water the same way that a hawk does, I might call it that giant hawk. If it looked like, if it was a flying saucer and it looked like an eye observing the waters, I might call it the all-seeing eye. So you don't read it necessarily in a fundamentalist way. You read it asking, what is the memory that has been carried by this story and when you realize that different metaphor, different language is appealing to the same visual memory from this culture, this culture, this culture, from different ages all around the planet, that's when you start reading mythology with a more open eye to things being remembered and told in such a way that they would be remembered through the ages, which is exactly what has happened. <clears throat> I'm going to read through some of these comments because that that was an amazing definition. I call it a definition. That was an expression. Um, 
I, one, of, one of the things that here I'm reading, I'm going to read this comment from Barbara, Miss, Miss Barbara Borchers here. Religion is man-made and we are born with spirituality. We are born feeling, uh, I'm, I'm going to dig deeper into this, right? This was just a, a, a comment. Reading religion is a man-made concept and we are born with spirituality. What do you think of that? I think that's absolutely true. I think we all have uh, the capacities that we're familiar with using, and I believe we all have higher capacities as well. Anyone who's had a baby, for instance, knows that our first language is telepathy, because baby cannot verbalize what baby wants, and so every mother has to try and pick up from baby, what does baby need right now? What does baby want? And the first place we go, and the first place baby goes, is telepathic communication so i absolutely think that's right you can call that spirituality i just think that's humanity uh, operating mm -hmm. religion yeah historically it it is man-made that's absolutely right and sometimes religion is an attempt to understand our experience of life on earth and sometimes it's just another way of organizing our life on earth <laughs> And uh, the history of Judaism, Christianity certainly falls into that history of Islam, very much the same. But yes, I think spirituality is alive within all of us. I think in a way we are taught out of it. I think as children we're often very tuned in. So for instance, I mentioned my, my seven-year-old earlier when he was, probably we noticed this from the time he was four. I would be thinking something and it would be a grown-up thought about something that I wasn't discussing with the family, and a whole sentence of what I just thought would be spoken by my five-year-old. <laughs> it would mean nothing to him, mm -hmm. but he just spoke the sentence. So that's an example of he, he is spiritually awake. He's tuned in. His brain waves are in that place where he can download from the field. We have it at that young age, and then we stop paying attention to it because we get busy with what school wants us to do and what our world of work wants us to do, maybe what mummy and daddy <laughs> wants us to do as well. And we begin to move our attention away from some of these other things. I'm now at the stage in my life where I'm trying to recover it because I realize that mystical and shamanic traditions all around the world have existed for exactly that purpose, re-engaging these higher capacities <clears throat> mr paul there's there was a really great comment here and i want to <laughs> share it with you uh miss number one there was miss krista nickerson says paul thank you for your work she's listened and watched she's like she's she's all about you she watched your video she loves you thanks so thank you for your work paul um miss <clears throat> per percy nickerson says that the human brain, the design, and I agree with this totally, the design of the human brain, Paul, is almost clerical evidence that there is a, a precise, perfect design and a consciousness beyond what we realize, okay, and it's a perfect design. The human brain, think of that concept. Yes, I think that's quite right. Uh, if you listen to the work of Vladimir Sherbak and Maxim Makukov of the Fesenkov Astrophysical Institute and the Kazakh Al-Farabi National University, they are leading authorities in the world. 
uh, on DNA research, and they talk about this from that level. So even before we're put together, they are finding numerical patterns in our, the structure of our DNA that suggest uh, exactly what Percy was saying, and our brains are a manifestation of that. Our ancestors talk about our brains having been created to do far more than they're currently doing. So if you go to the Popol Vuh, the, uh, the Mayan story of origins, it says that there came a stage when those who intervened in our evolution and upgraded us accidentally upgraded us to be rather smarter than we are now. So us plus a bit of remote viewing, us plus a bit of telepathy, us plus uh, precognition, us plus a better capacity for self-healing. And they found it very difficult to manage that population. And so they had an emergency meeting of, can we dial these humans down to the point where they're, they're just bright enough to work in our houses, uh, but not, uh, not any smarter than that. And so they have this emergency meeting and the chief genetic engineer, Kukumats, a.k.a. Quetzalcoatl, a.k.a. Kukulkan, comes up with a, a, a solution, which is a... Downgrade. Which, when sprayed over human populations, brain damages us to the point where we can no longer operate all our brains, where we lose the remote viewing, precognition, self-healing, telepathy, where we're limited to a tiny perceptual field of what's immediately around us, according to these five senses, and for any other information, well, we'll just have to rely on what we're told by an authority. And those who governed over us found they could work with that. Now, it's a very curious story. It doesn't glorify anybody. It doesn't glorify the rulers or human beings. It's a strange story to make up. But it actually repeats in cultures all around the world. The ancient Greeks have a similar story with Zeus and Prometheus. The Sumerians told a story between Enlil and Enki, a conflict over how intelligent we should be. In the current translation of the Bible, it's a conflict between God and the serpent. God wanted us so unintelligent we didn't even know we were naked. He wanted us at an animal level, and the serpent said, no, let's make them cleverer than that. That's wow. one of those moments that you think, that doesn't quite make sense, until you realize this isn't really a story about God and the serpent at all. This is Enlil and Enki. The Sumerian entities having their conversations. You can go to Nigeria, and in the story of Abasi and Atai, these sky beings who live on an island in the sky and engineer human beings. They make them too clever. Uh, they become a civilization. They have to be downgraded. So they release devices into the environment that will damage their mental health and their physical health. That way they can be managed. So all this is interesting because... It says, absent of these devices in the environment, absent of this vapor sprayed over human populations, absent of toxins in the environment, our natural state is cleverer than this. Our natural state is we use all of our brains. Our natural state is all those superpowers that I mentioned before. And I think that explains not only our brains and the design of them and the incredible way in which they develop, it also explains a phenomenon called acquired savant syndrome, which is a real-world phenomenon researched by peer-reviewed neuroscientists around the world where advanced cognitive abilities are knocked 
into the on position by accident and all of a sudden people can do advanced mathematics and quantum this that and the other or they can play an instrument or speak a language they couldn't speak before that's a real phenomenon those are explained by our ancestors saying we were all at this level and then we were downgraded but there are ways we can re-engage this and get ourselves operating at that level once again and those ways are embedded in the initiation traditions of cultures around the world and i would suggest that's one of the reasons why there's been a wholesale attempt for more than a hundred years to illegalize disrupt and discontinue initiation ceremonies in cultures around the world because just as in the popol vu we're easier to manage without those things <clears throat> do you do you paul think <clears throat> that this is happening again today because i think that the fall i think that the fall of man okay the written record fall of man in the biblical text narrative is exactly what's happening today we are being we are being dumbed down with what you said okay the aspiration in the air the toxification of our food the uh impurities of our water you name it they are not they it's like and then if you look at the human residence of the energetic inbound frequency of the planet now again we're talking esoterics something is like wanting us to upgrade okay and then you've also got something that's wanting to keep us dumbed down and docile yes you, yes that's right yeah that's exactly right so that conflict the enlil enki god and the serpent conflict over how intelligent should we upgrade them should we dumb them down mm -hmm. yes that is still uh, very live I find it very interesting that if you talk to somebody who has become an elder of an indigenous culture or a guardian or a traditional healer or if you talk to a psychic and you ask them is there anything you've done to try and heighten your sensitivity almost always they'll say well I changed what I eat uh, I drink a lot of pure water I don't drink the tap water I eat less meat, I eat live foods, I eat more raw foods, I eat a cleaner diet. You'll often hear people say things like that. And I think there's a reason for that. If you go to um, Plato and what he did in order to be able to have communication with interdimensional beings, he did this ceremony called the, um, the Kaikion ceremony, part of the Eleusinian Mysteries. And we know that that involved ingesting a tea that was a brew of leaves and fungus that was then fermented. But before you could take that, you had to fast. You had to live on a very clean diet for at least a week before you did that. And anyone who's done a tea ceremony around the world today, they'll tell you the same thing, that altering your diet is a big part of that. So cleaning up our environment, in terms of our foods, what we're ingesting, how much pollution we've got in the air, in terms of what we're breathing, or electronic uh, it, uh, interference in the air. That is all very important in terms of maximizing our health. I discovered some of this by accident a few years ago when I wanted to fix my sleep apnea. 
and I had a sleep test and the doctor said, okay, the next step is to get a CPAP machine. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've seen these, but they are it's a very confronting piece of equipment that you wear when you sleep. It looks like a life support system and it hisses and gurgles and it keeps your airways open to stop the back of your throat closing while you're asleep, which is what sleep apnea is. Right. I've got um, that. I uh, tried using it. They're very difficult to get used to. A lot of people, once they've got used to it, they're happy with them. Um, my wife didn't find it very easy sleeping next to a sleep machine. <laughs> next to a generator. <laughs> and I was, it was a pressure time at work, and I thought, I can't be experimenting with my sleep right now. Uh, I'm going to go back to my old disrupted sleep apnea sleep and come back to the CPAP machine another time. So when a few months later I said, Ruth, I've got to try that machine again. She said, would you try something else first? Try an earthing mat. Now, an earthing mat is something you put on your bed, and it's just a, um, a hack that gives you the same effect as sleeping on the ground or walking barefoot on the ground. It what? earths you, just as you would earth any other electronical device in your home. Okay. Uh, we all have an electromagnetic field around our body, and the theory of earthing is that if you earth yourself by contact with the ground, then it's good for your EMF, it's good for your health. Hmm. Well, I'd heard this theory. I didn't know what to make of it. But because Ruthie said, would you try the earthing mat first? <laughs> and it's a lot cheaper than a CPAP machine. Yeah, I said, right. all right, I'll, I'll try it. <clears throat> and from the very first night, I slept, didn't once wake up coughing and spluttering, slept peacefully all night, breathing through my nose for the first time in I don't know how long. And I, it was brought home to me what a change this was when a few months later, we had gone out at the crack of dawn, worked the markets, and then four in the afternoon, been up since five, four in the afternoon, we get to the hotel room we're staying in, I flopped down on the bed, having unloaded the car, four fast asleep for 10 minutes mm -hmm. before I wake up coughing and spluttering <laughs> because I wasn't earthed. There was no earthing mat on the bed. When that happened, I realized, okay, it's working. How is it working? Right, and right. I had to work my way back and realize our bodies use our electromagnetic field for things like the back of your throat, keeping it open, and for other things. When you respond to something that is about to hit you in the face and brush it away, it is not your nervous system that responded that quickly because your nervous system can't move that far, fast. Your body sensed it sooner and moved faster because it is using its electromagnetic field to sense things coming in your direction. Now, that's like a red pill. When you suddenly realize that's the case, you say, oh, what else can I use this for? Right. What else does the EMF do? What else damages it? What else helps it? And I realized that when my sleep apnea developed, it was when I was sleeping a meter away from the junction box through which all the electricity came from the mains into our house. <laughs> so small wonder that a function that depended on my EMF wasn't working well. So it's that. It's that the electrical environment, the radio environment, internet, food, water, all these things you start paying attention to when you want to clean your life up, be healthier, and be a little bit more sensitive to contact experiences that might 
be a normal, regular part of your life if you're not too polluted or too distracted. If you're not polluted and distracted, that's interesting. So this is this is not necessarily just grounding. This is literally clearing up your entire life, changing your eating habits, everything, right? Get, getting rid of the toxification that we, we ingest every day. Yeah. I um, think, you know, all of us are trying to work out how to operate a human body, aren't we? And we're hoping by the time we die, we've worked out how to do it. And so we, we generally make these changes very ad hoc, a bit at a time. But I do find that when people reach a point where they're wanting to heighten their consciousness, that's when they get a bit more intentional and say, all right, what are the things I need to fix? What do I need to address? And I mentioned distraction. That That is another. I think one of the ways we dumb people down today is by overstimulation, over-entertainment. And I think if you watch the movie Gladiator, that's a very good dramatization of, here's a, um, a Roman emperor saying, if we provide the people with enough entertainment, then we can do whatever we want to do right. by closed doors, because people won't notice or they won't <laughs> care enough. And that's really the danger of our culture, I think. We're so overstimulated, so over-entertained, that we miss some of the big themes of what's going on and how we want to live and how we want our human society governed and how we don't want it governed. Are you not entertained? Are you entertained? Are you not entertained? I understand, Paul. You hit the nail on the head, man. It's like the more... I, 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 I don't know why, why our people are so geared toward the hatred the killing the violence the destruction the it's like paul i myself don't like to feed that injust into my into my psyche i don't anytime yeah. anytime someone calls like like you know spectrum internet over here that calls calls every now and then it's like oh we've got a good deal on spectrum internet blah 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 we're going to give you this for, for tv blah 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 i don't want your television i want i don't want that paul i go i go to youtube i've got one service that's streaming in my house my friend and that is internet i've got a media machine in that in there hooked to the television my little family we watch good wholesome stuff for our brain you follow what i'm saying we will not i will we won't watch that we don't feed that beast yes I, well, I think you do have to be very intentional about what you watch. I think that we can be distracted or manipulated um, through different parts of our brain, if I can put it that way. So mm -hmm. it could be manipulated through information. So that if we are fed propaganda of a particular kind, we will, we will believe it and it will affect our behavior. And we've seen plenty of that oh, yeah. in the last couple of years, for sure. And further back as well, we've seen a real polarization of our societies. And that's been done through algorithms and the propaganda that those algorithms carry. So that's at one level. So that's an intellectual level. But then we're also manipulated, you know, when we're manipulated by fear, for instance, 
that's the very deepest part of our brain that's being toyed with. Our most um, primitive part of the brain is the center for fight, flight, or fright. The reptilian and brain, they call the it reptilian the reptilian brain. brain. That's right. <clears throat> so when we're manipulated by fear, we're being manipulated there. But also when we're being entertained by violence, it's the same bit of the brain that's saying, oh, this is good. That's your fight bit of the brain being engaged and saying, oh, that's a good fight. Mm -hmm. uh, so we could be toyed with it in lots of ways. So entertainment can go quite deep and play with us at, at that level. And if we live at that level too much, we become too fighty. Well, oh, that's not good for society. If we become too frightened, then, oh, well, that's not going to lead you anywhere very healthy either. No. Or, or we can be frightened to the point of um, paralysis, where we just don't know what to do. We don't know what to think. And I do find from time to time, you know, if you get into a conversation where you are encouraging someone to question something, an assumption they've lived with for a long, long time, you, they'll begin to see the daylight and then they'll say, oh, I don't want to have to think about that. <laughs> and that's the paralysis thing. It's overwhelming and I'd rather stay paralyzed than realize I have to fight or flee. Right. If you see what I mean. So, you know, we're quite vulnerable in lots of ways, but I think this is a time, the last couple of years in particular, where we've had to get a bit smarter about looking after our own mental health looking after our emotional state if you realize oh my goodness what has been fed to me on the tv for the last two days has me all jittery and anxious and i'm getting touchy with people at that point you think okay i don't think i'm gonna watch as much tv i'm not gonna drive with the radio on anymore and i'm gonna make darn sure before i step out the front door i've got myself together and that what i bring to conversations today is going to be helpful and nice and kind and positive and upbuilding and encouraging. I think a lot of us have had to get more intentional in that kind of way because if we if we don't, then we do get overwhelmed by information and propaganda and we go into a funk, which is no good for any of us. Paul, what do you what do you think and where do you see us going as a society and as a people? Right now, I'm asking you, where do you see us going with the evolution of consciousness, the enlightenment, because we hear it all the time, the enlightenment, the awakening, the that. Where, where do you see us going from here right yeah. now? Well, I think uh, it's the kind of the reflection of everything we were just talking about with, with entrainment, dumbing down, over-entertaining. There's that side of the picture. But at the same time, I am witnessing a level of people sitting up, waking up, giving attention, thinking fresh things, and getting a fresh hunger and appetite on them to learn what's really going on, learn who we really are, learn what we're really capable of, find out what this human life really can be. I engage with people every week who are from their teens up into their 80s saying exactly that. I have an appetite to find out what's real. I no longer believe what I did 10 years ago. I am believing things I did not before. I'm looking into things that I've dismissed before. And it is like a waking up that's happening. And people not just waking up to ideas, 
but waking up to patterns in their life, realizing they have this invisible team that's been assisting them, opening their minds to the possibility that there's a, a whole lot more information and help available to each and every one of us as we navigate this life. I have never seen this kind of waking up and hunger and appetite that I'm seeing right now in all my life before. And right. I find that really, really exciting. And I do believe, as our ancestors said, we have helpers ready to give us information. So with the writer of 1 John 4, I would say expect to be getting inspiration, ideas, information from your invisible team that will help you with whatever your life is about right now and that will help you with your journey as a being of consciousness on this planet. There's a lot more help than school has taught you to engage with or religion has taught you is available. And I would say wake up to that, give it attention because we're not alone and the company that we're in is not all bad. A lot of it is there to support us on our journey. Oh, that you know what? Usually, everybody that is here with me on the Matrix, whether whether it even whether it be a guest or just a call in, that I, I usually have them say something positive on on the closing of the show. But what you just said, oh my God, that that I, Paul, I don't think you can really top <laughs> top that because that that was like. I that was my heart that was everybody else's heart that has been on this road of quote unquote enlightenment and watching our peers go through this and struggle through their own I guess it would be like shit it's like finding your own identity okay yeah. it's like it, 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 it's so hard to speak how you feel without just being um, being and or feeling and then just well, oh my God! I'm gonna be I'm gonna be the outcast to my family, or yeah. you know, you know what I'm saying? Oh my God, Paul, let's uh, take I a know. let's take a call real quick. Okay. I just un I just unmuted them, but finish 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 your statement before the caller kicks on. They're from your they're from your country, Paul. Uh, I would just say uh, you might be surprised at who else is on the same page as you. So take a risk from time to time. And there may be some relative or some friend mm -hmm. who will blow you away by saying, actually, and you'll realize they're on the same page as you. And it's also, I think platforms like yours, Matt, are so important because when we don't have that in our family, we can come and find some community in environments like you've created and realize we're not alone in this journey. We're not alone in this journey, Paul. I, we've, we, that's one of the main things that I've said here all, all along the along the entire road is you know brainiacs you're not alone okay brainiacs because i i talked to them i talked to this audience they know paul i talk to the abcs i do every one of them because they've got a consciousness they're not alone they're what we're watching they're watching their own system crumble before their face they are, in, especially in your country. Let's go to this caller here on in your country, Australia, a, uh, a country code 661. Welcome to the Matrix Minds, my friend Brainiac. You're online with Mr. Paul Anthony Wallace. Hello. <coughs> First of all, thank you very much to Paul 
from everyone coming on and speaking your truth and your fire. Just have to say that. Much love, much respect, everyone. Hopefully, you guys can hear me. We can. We absolutely yeah, yeah. can. I've just got to say, I've just been listening and, you know, watching the comments and everyone, you know, getting that, that sense of... The sad thing is the sense of knowing that you've been fed all this corruption and lies, these half-truths, this self-disclosure. And, you know, when it comes to Christianity and religion, everyone sets their faith and their emotional connection to it. And we're finding it that people are breaking these connections and starting to realize there are truths that, that, that are not known. And when it comes to that thing with God and Christianity, they don't want to have to go and explain, oh shit, sorry, we left that out. Oh no, we, oh sorry, we should have really interpreted that the right way. There's no going back on that now. There's only what we can do to move forward. Like Paul was saying, is connecting with each other and speaking these truths of what we know. Yes, that's absolutely right. I'm amazed. And sorry, what's your name? I missed your name at the beginning of that. I'm Richard. Richard, thank you so much for, for calling in. I am amazed by how many people I engage with from week to week who are from a faith background and they may be churchgoers or they may not be but they have made this journey that we've been speaking about, sometimes very, very courageously, because it means they are on the outside of their church or on the outside of their family. And at the same time, I have been really encouraged by how many people are in that environment who are on this journey, but who have just not had permission really to talk about it within their faith communities. Uh, when I published um, Escaping from Eden, well, quite a lot of my ministry friends went a bit quiet, which is a bit sad. But then I have other ministry friends who perhaps I was less closely connected with who have surprised me by saying, bingo, Paul, that's right. And I can see when I, when I look back now on their ministries, I can see, yes, actually it did have a very different flavor to it. It didn't have that controlling you know, thou must do A, B, and C dynamic to it. I think there are more people in our faith communities who are alive to these things than we might give credit to. I identify with what you said at the beginning because I had to go through a process of dealing with the anger of how, how can we have theological colleges full of people who know 80% of what I'm saying but don't want to join the final 20% of the dots. Um, how can we keep putting out clergy who are telling the old stories and not going to the places we've been and setting people free from narratives that can be very diminishing and have people living in constant anxiety when that's really not necessary at all. Right. <laughs> and I, I, I had to process not only the anger at that, but I then had to think, well, how much of my time did I waste with um, pushing forward narratives that were inaccurate or that were off? And I just finally had to reach the point of saying, well, this has been the journey. This is what's got me to the present day. 
And now this is where I'm going moving forward. And I'm very grateful I've reached this point, even if I had to take this circuitous route. So there's a bit of processing uh, that has to go on. And some of the coaching I do is, is with people who are trying to do that processing for themselves. I think it's very easy to get stuck in exasperation with religious authorities, but with civic authorities as well. I mean, when you think about covert layers of government sitting on information that could be life-changing about who we are, about the company that we have, about the potential to have a totally different economic system than the one, the, the one we have because of access to free energy. You could live in a perpetual state of fury and exasperation. And at some point you have to find a way of saying, okay, well, this is the world. <laughs> how am I now gonna live in it? And how am I gonna thrive in it? How do I bring my children up in it? Knowing that that's actually the shape of the world we're in. And I think our ancestral narratives are there to open our eyes to these things so that we can do the maths and then move forward in some kind of way. And I think, again, this is why I love platforms like this because it's very difficult to work all this out on your own. You have to find other people to have conversations with to do some of this processing and to say, okay, well, I've come to terms with this and this, that this is just a scandal and I hope we can open this up a bit more. Meanwhile, this is how I'm living my life. We actually need each other to work that stuff out, I believe. Mm-hmm. 100%. 100%. Very well said. I think what we're finding is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but we've talked about consciousness and creation and the awareness of perpetuating sort of this um, whether it be fear or everything that comes into play. But if we bring it back to the Bible and we talk about faith and conscious awareness of God and creation and the returning of God and angels, are we to, to, are we silly to not think that that in itself can be manifested through our consciousness because the global awareness of religion is huge and it doesn't matter what scale it's on, whether it be this side or this side or this side, it's still there. It still exists on that plane. And whether or not they connect the dots to us being bred and having our DNA manipulated with and this whole system being designed, unless that happens, mm-hmm. people are yes. manifesting this, this... Do you know what I'm saying? Gender- yeah, yes, I do. I do, absolutely. So, I mean, in every religion... Probably in every religion, you can find um, ugly patterns of human uh, manipulation and management, but at the same time, you can find schools of mysticism and higher consciousness. And I am always delighted when I find people who've come, say, from a Buddhist start point, or a Christian start point, a Jewish start point, or a uh, Native American start point, And as they've pursued this mystical journey of seeking to be as conscious as they can be, they're realizing that they're arriving on the same territory. And so when I study the mysticism of Eastern Orthodox Hesychasts, I suddenly find I'm I'm on the same turf as um, practitioners of martial arts who have really ascended to a very high level where it's all about higher consciousness 
And I think we shouldn't um, uh, we shouldn't belittle religion to the point where we can't see that these schools of mysticism come out of that environment and can produce really uh, transformational experiences and transformational people. And so, although I'm quite happy to point out examples of institutional religion being very destructive throughout history, I don't go out there to rubbish religion per se, or to rubbish the Bible, because it is also the wellspring of all this phenomenal, shamanic, mystical expertise that's been built up by people through the ages. And now when I go back to the Hesychasts of Eastern Orthodoxy, I realize they are doing things that any person can do. You don't have to be a religious person to do what they're doing and begin waking up in the way that they did. So I find mysticism is a great meeting place that really transcends all the boundaries of religious, non-religious, or different religious communities. But it is a reason why I don't go out and rubbish religion per se for, for the reasons you've just said. Let me throw this in the mix. Let me throw this in the mix here real, real quick, guys. And that that is, you, you got to remember, the, we were all, Paul, I know you're not much older than me, if you're older than me at all. <laughs> I know Richard is, I know that Richard is is, is not. So in my, in, in my age and de- demographics, I was brought up, I, I already told you off air, Paul, I was brought up Southern Pentecostal, okay? And it is really, really, really hard to break that narrative thinking break that controlism if you want to call it that control because Paul Richard and everybody listening it you are almost persecuted if you think beyond the scope of the narrative that we've been taught from grandma to mother to grandma's grandma's grandma to mother's mother's to your grandpa you can't even be you do you see what I'm saying? Whenever you're locked into that control factor, yeah. holy cow! I mean, your person, dude. Do, do do you understand that we're, we've got friends that are losing family members? Yes. Simply because they want to be themselves, Paul. Yes, it's 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 very uh, horrible uh, to to see that dynamic play out. I, there's so so many reasons that that happens. A lot of it goes back to what I was saying about separation anxiety. So, uh, you know, families don't want family members to go to hell. Right. And the church doctrine of hell is like the absolute apex of separation anxiety doctrine. The idea that you're going to be separated from God and um, happiness for eternity. And you're going to be conscious and you're going to know it. Hell is actually not a doctrine that Jesus taught in the Gospels, it's a distortion of what Jesus taught. But it's the it's where you get to from separation anxiety. So it can make families do some pretty extreme things in trying to control the thinking of their children. But it's, it's very distorting of our personalities to worship a violent God. If you worship a God who is a monster, it makes monsters of us. If you worship a God who will excuse genocide, 
then you will excuse genocide. So it's very distorting at that level. Mm-hmm. And it's distorting of our own truth as well, because you can find families, uh, mentioning no names, but you can find <laughs> right. families mm-hmm. where people will be pushed out of the family because they've had a close encounter experience. It doesn't fit the narrative of their church and they won't stop talking about it or they won't agree to the biblical interpretation of the family. They'll be pushed out, no longer invited to Christmas, so on and so forth. Right. Meanwhile, mum and grandma have had close encounters as well. Do you see what I mean? But they don't want to have, talk about them. They just haven't spoken it. They They're haven't right. spoken it. They haven't spoken it. They've stayed silent about it. So there's that scenario. There's another scenario where they've had close encounters and they believe it's demonic and now they're worried their kid's getting sucked into that. And so that leads them to drastic and irrational behaviors. And this makes me angry because if those pastors were doing their job, that would not happen. If those pastors studied the texts, understood the texts, and or were led by compassion in their ministries, they would not let their flock behave that way. But unfortunately, there's this underlying anxiety about shrinking congregation, losing your pay base, losing your position, um, falling into disfavor with the deacons or the elders, all the group think, being blackboard, all the group think that happens in church suddenly counts against you the moment you think something or have an experience that is extracurricular. And it is really down to the pastors to do their theology, do their homework, and translate that into pastoral practice. And it's one of the reasons why I don't mind being provocative with my books, The Scars of Eden, Escaping from Eden, and Echoes of Eden, because I really think it is a shame uh, on pastors and clergy for not going to this place when pastors uh, at the beginning of Christianity would go there and would talk about it and would have conversations with people who'd had these experiences. It's absolutely wrong to demonize people because they've had an experience you don't want them to talk about. And so we have to break the taboo and let these conversations happen. And um, I hope that that story I told of the priest going to the bishop and the bishop saying, you're absolutely right, right. please never mention it again. I hope we can see the end of that (laughs) if we can force people into conversation. I know many pastors and youth pastors who know everything we're saying, but who won't dare speak it because they don't want to lose their job. Again, this goes back this goes back to the very beginning of your nice conversation when now here's here's where i paul I'm, I'm a radio host okay whenever i see someone with absolute credentials come on either coast to coast am jimmy church you name it cnn and well cnn well, we both know i know you don't like censorship I know you don't like censorship. When we see someone with the credentials within academiology that that can literally share what you've just shared and bring that following with the awakening, that is whenever I am going to say, I'm going to call, hell, Paul, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to call, yeah, Ruth, 
You gotta go get Paul. You ain't gonna believe what I just heard on the news. <laughs> Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. I, 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 that's yep. what I'm, Paul. That's what I'm waiting for. Yeah. Paul, that's me, what me we need. Paul, that's what we are literally as a humanity are waiting on. I'm not waiting on Enlil. I'm not waiting on NK. I'm not waiting for Christ in the, in the clouds. I'm literally waiting for mainstream media, okay, or someone with credentials to say it's okay. This is this is now going to be the forbearing narrative of what we're going to teach, and what we're going to teach is what you're what you're bringing forth, Paul. The true think, digging of history. You know, if if only media could work out that people are interested, that would be a start point. I mean, we put out a video on the Fifth Kind TV that gave just a, a little piece of the information we just discussed today. Mm -hmm. And I think we're up to eight and a half million views on that. Now, if I were, and that's in sort of 18 months, something like that. We did another one, got to a million in, in three weeks. I would have thought that some mainstream media organization would look at that and say, oh, there's an appetite out there. They ought to look at the History Channel and they might laugh at ancient aliens, but that's the History Channel's biggest show. Mm -hmm. And so I would think that other platforms might look at that and say, look, there is an interest uh, in this. Maybe we should start supplying more material on this front and getting some discussion going and see what happens, if only for economic reasons. <sighs> Paul, it doesn't, it doesn't mm. follow the narrative. It, it don't. doesn't follow the narrative. And the, and the one thing that should concern people is the validation people need. Oh, I need to hear it from a higher source. Something just happened to my computer here, y'all. What the hell is going on? Hang on a second. That's just great. even hear me there we are i can hear you now wow it's like I, I clicked on the screen and it's like next thing you know someone's starting i'm telling you right now i just had somebody take over my machine because i have done this for 12 years paul richard knows this richard is now gone i'm telling you the truth richard is like gone off of off of the studio something just tried to end the show i i don't know i don't whatever wow. man well oh, we're yeah. still here still Most, here. we are still here but we are we are indeed gonna wrap up paul it, i've had you here for two hours and and don't you know uh, you know uh, thank ruth for me and i appreciate <laughs> your time i'm serious because the time that you spent with me with us is is to me invaluable it is it is priceless okay i i'm serious and i appreciate you for being here 
Well, thanks, Matt. I've really enjoyed our conversation today. We've gone some really interesting places. I love your platform and what you do. I think it's so important to what's happening in the world right now. Everything we were saying about people waking up and needing to find each other, you are facilitating that. I try. <laughs> Without being hijacked, I try. Oh, my God, Paul. All right. Well, look, I, I, before Richard got blown out of there, please, Paul, say something good, something positive to humanity, and I am going to indeed cut you loose and let you go back to your, your sweetheart. And again, thank you again for your time. We're going to talk a little bit uh, on the closing of Echoes of Eden. That is what do for the release on May 1st of 2020 coming up. Yeah. That's Looking right. May 1st, 2022. Echoes of Eden. And already you can go and get The Scars of Eden and Escaping from Eden. Wherever books are sold, you should find that. You can find me at paulanthonywallace.com. That's Anthony with an H. Wallace, W-A-L-L-I-S.com. Or on the Fifth Kind TV or on the Paul Wallace channel. So uh, a closing thought. Yes. I think I'd go back to what we were saying before about needing to be very intentional about where you live emotionally, what emotional state you allow yourself to get into, because there's so much going on at the moment that could push us into fear, funk, or fury, and we have to help each other in this regard. We need to look out for each other, to see that we're all right emotionally, because if we, if we are, and if we're going at this life with a sense of fun and creativity, even with all the crazy that's going on around us, when you are in that headspace, that is when you can start thinking fresh things and all sorts of interesting synergies and synchronicities start happening. You have to be ready for it. You have to be ready to play with the universe. And when you are, the universe will come and play with you. So I just say be really... Um, intentional about that look after yourself get yourself into a good place emotionally and just see what the universe is going to bring you awesome that was awesome paul i appreciate you again my friend we got to have you back here soon sometime we'll schedule, love to. we would schedule we'll schedule this like towards the end of the year i know you're going to be a busy man i i i again I'm not a, I'm not someone with credentials to endorse you, but I'm going to tell you right now, and I'll tell everybody that's watching this. Paul Anthony Wallace is going to be a force to be reckoned with. The recluse of all of it. He's going to bring forth religion, history, and make you... If you can't connect the dots, he's going to connect the dots for you. And if you've got some dots already connected, he's going to fortify those dots. Without a doubt in my mind, Mr. Paul, I appreciate you once again. Take care of yourself, and thank you again for being with me. Thanks, Matt. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> All right. Good night to you, buddy. All right, ladies and gentlemen, my friends. Wow. Mr. Paul Anthony Wallace, I indeed do believe that that was an amazing, amazing talk. With Without a doubt, he is going to be a force to be reckoned with. Um, when it comes to academiology, when it comes to everything that we know as history, Paul, indeed, he's got it. He's got it. As you guys well know, like I shared with Paul, I was brought up. I was brought up one specific way, 
and I know that a lot of us have been, a, been been brought up another, you know, that specific dogmatic controlism, uh, controlling way. It's all it's the only thing I can say. Everything that I've ever wanted to say and or questions that I've had, I guarantee you it's going to be in Echoes of Eden. Because reading Scars of Eden has already fortified for me that there's other people out there like Paul that bring a a, a, a metal and aluminum bat to the platform and indeed... He has he's got no problem with, with writing it, delivering it, and, and, and again, connecting the dots for not just myself, but for all of humanity. Man, it was a great talk. I indeed appreciate you guys for being with me. I do. Matthew Turner here with The Matrix Minds. Once again, Mr. Paul Anthony Wallace. You guys can find him at paulanthonywallace.com. You can go to Amazon Books. You can go anywhere that there is books sold on this planet. Without a doubt, Brainiacs, you guys know this more than anything. I'm going to consult you as well as the powers that be, Mr. ABC. I love you. We love you. Like we said in this broadcast earlier today, we've got a heart. We've got consciousness. We are waiting on you to break the fabric of reality. Catch up with the Brainiacs. Catch up with this great author. We're watching this system collapse around us, my friends. You're in the middle of it. You're in the middle of it. And we're just waiting for you to stand up, speak out, because the people around you, indeed, we're here. We're here with you. We're waiting on you. It's not you waiting on us, my friends. It is us waiting on you. Once again, everybody, thank you for joining us. The Matrix Mize. Catch us here Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 9 p.m. Central, 7 p.m. Pacific. Shout out one more time to everybody, and i got to share this one more time. I know, I know the un, uh, the uncensored side of things. I want to say this. We can be found on Amazon Music, Pandora Radio, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and everywhere around the globe. This podcast is streamed everywhere around the globe. Just go to your Alexa device. Say, play the Matrix Minds podcast, and indeed she'll have no problem playing it for you. Same thing with Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple iTunes, everywhere, everywhere around the planet. Matrix Breakers worldwide, shout out to you one more time. I love you, and we'll catch you another time. Just another channel, another time, another day. Be blessed, be safe, we'll catch you. Good night. We're in the Matrix. We're in the Matrix. We're in the Matrix. Let's do this.